I'm Dorothy Atkinson and I'm Professor of Learning Disability at the Open University. My name's Victor. Good morning, anyone. Welcome. Well, the research that we're doing is about the hidden history of learning disability. It's part of a very important part of our social lives, but it's mostly gone forgotten. And so part of our research has been to unearth this and to bring it out into the open, to talk to people who are involved and, and to portray it and to celebrate it in some ways. People with learning disability, they're the same as everybody else. The only difference is they're a bit slower and some of them don't read or anything like that. But otherwise, they're all the same. Well, we started in 1997 with our very first conference and it was a bit experimental at the time because we were bringing together people who are historians and researchers and people with lived experience, people with learning difficulties who'd actually lived through these times. And we've just kept going ever since and it's become sort of a, a, an institution in its own right now. Just before we start, there's, a, <clears throat> as usual, a few housekeeping rules that I need to say. The first is, could you please switch your mobile phones off? It's a very revealing thing, I think, for historians to know that there's more than what was written down, that there were people actually there. And some of these things, of course, we only know about because of oral history and they're not accounted for in any other way. Thank you to Victor for his welcome to everybody. I'm Sue Dumbleton. I'm going to be co-chairing with Victor this morning. So I'd like to introduce to you our first speaker, who's Deborah Cohen, Professor of History from Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. So Deborah's come a very long, long way uh, to be with us today. I'm Deborah Cohen. I'm here for the Social History of Learning Disability Conference, and the conference is about families and learning difficulties. I'm actually writing a book on family secrets in Britain from the early 19th century to the present day. And so what I'm interested in the ways in which families um, dealt with social stigmas among their own members. So what I'm really interested in is the ways in which disabled or children's learning difficulties were treated in families um, in the past and also now. So when they were hidden away and when it came out into the open. My name is Mabel. I'm 64 and I was in St Lawrence's for 25 years. For me, because the hospital was always saying shut up and what have you, I didn't speak. I learned to speak when I came out of the hospital. What we've discovered is that other conferences have people with disabilities as presenters, but what we pride ourselves on is that People are now operating as equals. It's, there's nothing tokenistic about it. People come in their own right and, and they take part as, as experts in their own right and they feel able to challenge things that they don't agree with, that they know from personal experience are wrong. I've been coming longer than Gloria. It may have got me into this. But I enjoy it. It is very important and that we enjoy coming very much. Years ago, you would never see somebody with a learning disability doing this. You would ne- it would never be. You'd never come across it. Hi, I'm Jane Abraham, and I work with Mabel Cooper and Gloria Ferris. The work that they've been doing on looking at their families has been really important for them to actually see where they fit into their families, but also for the groups that we've worked with. It started people thinking about their families and 
has brought up for different people things that are important, places they want to go, people they want to see, and the opportunity to see that they have a, a valued life. Even if they've got a learning disability, they're still really important to their family and friends. So how many people were there in your family, Laurie? About 27. Don't, don't stop. <laughs> yeah. And 24 lived. Yeah. And did you have a good relationship with your family? I did and I didn't. Yeah. Because I was nev- never really at home a lot of the time. Only most, mainly weekends and, and holidays. I didn't know there was anybody left alive. I really didn't. I thought that had gone a long time ago. But Victor sent me a picture of himself. Oh, yeah. I, uh, you, you got uh, one my mother? Yes. Yeah. I got this picture Victor sent me before I met him and I showed it to my father's still alive and my father's in his 80s now and I showed him Victor's picture and he said, is it a brother that I don't know about? Because my dad and his sisters were given away. Uh, they were all born in the workhouse and then were given away. There was no record of them. They were just dispersed and my dad didn't know that it, perhaps Victor could have been a brother of his. Victor would be my dad's second cousin but because I'm the generation afterwards, it's second cousin once removed. Yeah. But it doesn't make any difference. We're still cousins, aren't we? Yeah. And we're family. Yeah. Yeah. My name is Duncan Mitchell. I'm a professor of health and disability. We know that there are problems with oral history in that we don't always get an accurate picture, but that's the same with documentary history because somebody created the documents for a particular reason. And if we can have as many oral histories as possible, we can begin to put things together, compare them to the documentary sources, and then we get much nearer to what actually happens than, than just using a documentary source or just using an oral Source. What's also interesting, though, is that some of their stories which weren't written down are now being written down by them, and the authority of the written word is something they really subscribe to, and they know what power it has on them because they've had their records kept over the years and they've been at the receiving end of other people's written comments. So now their lives are actually written down in whatever format, and sometimes on the website and so on, but sometimes they're in the form of a booklet or a chapter in a book. And that's, there's immense pride in that written word. So it becomes an authoritative history as well as a spoken history, which is not lost on people. Ladies and gentlemen, this is my book. And if you want to buy it, it's 10 euro <laughs> for the book. If anyone is interested in buying that book, I'd be very pleased to give you a copy of it and I know that you'll be able to read it perfectly because I have a lot of words in it that you'd love to hear. Thank you, Patrick. I suppose these conferences actually enthuse people. So people do go away and, and start doing a project of their own. People have come to do PhDs over the years. They do them elsewhere. Actually, our very first conference was in 1994, where we invited everybody we knew of in the whole country who we thought had an interest. There's about 12 people. And now we've got hundreds of people who are interested. And it's, it's become international now. So we do have people coming from Australia and... Iceland and Ireland and various European countries. So it's become a sort of worldwide phenomenon, partly helped by the closure of the institutions and the sort of feeling that we've got to record that history before it's too late. People have a right for their stories to be told and it helps them. And I think that's very important. It also gives us um, some knowledge of what they went through so that we can make sure we don't make the same mistakes 
but it also gives us a way of looking at current services because things will be going wrong with current services. And I happen to believe it's only with the historian's eye that we can really see that because we lose that arrogance that you sometimes get within services about that was then and it's all all right now, but we know it won't be. And it's only by looking at it, I think, often in the past that you begin to see those things. My name is Sheena Rolfe. I'm not very optimistic that you can learn specific lessons from history or that history will not repeat itself as a result, but I firmly believe that we can go some way towards that. I really firmly believe that oral history needs to be combined with archival history and with photographic history so that all those different aspects combine to create a big picture so we can learn a huge amount by revealing a hidden history, especially one as brutal and exclusive and isolating and hidden as the history of people with learning difficulties. They're still on the margins in some ways because although there's a move towards social inclusion, it's actually quite difficult for people, I think, to be included and to feel accepted and to feel part of what's going on. So I suppose we're contributing towards that in lots of ways because as people tell their stories, they gain more confidence, they start to make friends and there's something about them. The people have been coming here, they've got careers now of their own and telling their stories and teaching other people and going to schools and, well, in lots of different ways. Oh, I took over an organisation, the chair of People First in London. The importance of oral history is over and over again comes home to me that no matter how much you read documents or archives or look at photographs, that tends to give you a victim. But when you hear the stories, what the oral history does is show you that people are not victims, they're survivors. There's exciting news. Firstly, Gloria has just completed a Leaders of Tomorrow course. Is that right, Gloria? And you qualified as a Tomorrow's Leader. So well done, Gloria, for showing people the way. Congratulations. It's opened my eyes to corners of our social life. I thought I knew quite a lot, because I used to be a social worker in in this field. But there's so much I didn't know that I'm learning from it. So I think it's part of... It's like the Open University itself. I mean, you you go on learning. It's a lifelong learning process. And I'm still learning about it, although I've been interested for so many years. It's still more to know. For Mabel, we've just heard equally exciting news that Mabel's been awarded an honorary degree by the Open University in recognition of all the work that she has done to support students to finish their studies based on the life story that Mabel has told. And Mabel will be collecting her degree, I think, next year at one of the degree ceremonies for the Open University. So well done, Mabel.